Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Along with the ideological divisions that are part of our political and social life today, there are also the geographical divisions that essentially, at least as far as conventional wisdom goes, mirror those same divisions. Those of us on the East and West Coast have a kind of bond that would make you think that the Atlantic and Pacific are one, that the sun rises on one coast and sets on the other, and nothing much else in between seems to matter. After all, it's just flyover country. It's all the same, isn't it? Flat, backwards, disconnected from the global community, and connected only to the drumbeat of Fox News. But suppose that weren't true. Suppose there were more vibrancy and wisdom and energy there than we thought. Could a better understanding of place perhaps give us a better understanding of the lives of the people that inhabit it? We're going to talk about that today with my guest, Kristen Hoganson. Kristen Hoganson is the Stanley S. Straub Professor of United States History at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. She is the author of numerous books about U.S. history, and her current work is The Heartland on American History. Kristen Hoganson, thanks so much for joining us. It's great to be here, Jeff. It's good to have you here. First of all, when did you begin to think about the idea that that so much of what people think about the Midwest is really not accurate? The book originated with my move to East Central Illinois. So we're talking downstate from Chicago. And having grown up on the East Coast, I have to confess that I bought into some of the assumptions about flyover country that you were just talking um, about and that I had come to imagine the rural Midwest is more provincial than global cities like New York, San Francisco, and is less connected than edgier places such as coastal areas and borderlands. And then I moved to Illinois, and I turned on the radio the first day, and out came the weather forecast, and it was for weather in China, Argentina, and Brazil. And I realized I had no clue where in the world I'd landed, and the book is a result. And as you started to to break down some of these misconceptions, to break through some of the kind of conventional wisdom, talk a little bit about the areas that were the most profound in terms of the way the heartland of America, middle America, is understood or misunderstood. Right. So what I do in the book is I start with common perceptions, which are often perceptions that are held by outsiders, right, by urban um, dwellers and by coastal um, dwellers about the rural and small town Midwest in particular. And I focus on these rural areas because I think a lot of the national discourse about the heartland is about this mythological space, which is a profoundly rural space. And I think it's you know, an important part of our kind of national self-conceptions that there is this heart of the nation, right? There's real America somewhere in the middle of the country that is quintessential, um, the quintessentially all-American place that is local, it's insulated, it's isolationist, it's disproportionately white, it's the ultimate national safe space. And I think this has just been important in political discourse um, as well as in kind of nationalist and white nationalist in particular self um, conceptions. And 
the real story is far more interesting than these mythologies about place, that not only is the rural Midwest more demographically um, diverse, but the deeper I dug into local history, um, which is my method, I, I start with a local story and I follow the threads outward, and the deeper I dug, the more I realized that the underlying story is a global story, that the threads really unspool um, to the farthest corners of um, the world. How did this mythology come to be? How did we evolve the Midwest, A, into being the quote-unquote heartland? And, and how did all the, the mythology and misconceptions about it evolve? Yeah, so the term um, is a 20th century term. Um, the word heartland was coined by a British um, geographer, Sir Halford Mackinder, um, who coined it in reference to global power, um, that his uh, body of writing was um, about the Eurasian heartland. And his claim was whoever controlled the heartland would control the world. So he was arguing against navalist theories of the time that you know held that power lay in controlling waterways and um, uh, maritime circuits. And then those ideas really took hold in the United States during World War II when there was a lot of attention to the struggle to dominate um, Central Europe and the Eurasian um, heartland when um, Adolf Hitler and his Nazi war machine were trying to achieve that um, dominance. And then in the post-World War II era, in the early Cold War, the word kept surfacing in U.S. news reports, again, in reference to what the Soviet Union was doing and to the profound anxieties that the Soviets would establish global power by dominating the Eurasian heartland. So then when the term became applied to the United States in the early um, Cold War, Originally, it was all about power, right? It was about the U.S. capacity to exercise power globally through the industrial heartland. So it was a kind of acknowledgement that the United States was a, a leading um, superpower in the mid-20th century. But as existential anxieties continued to grow in the early Cold War, in the face of nuclear weapons, in the face of long-range bombers, in the face of intercontinental ballistic missiles, ultimately, um, I think there was a... a search for some kind of psychic fallout shelter, a place that would be seen as a place of safety, a buffered place, a place isolated um, from the rest of the world. And that became mapped onto racial politics, um, the sense being um, on the part of some that urban areas um, with their um, uh, racial and ethnic diversity um, were part of a threat to this conceived inner core of the nation. So I think these like domestic politics got conflated with global politics leading to the imagination of somewhere in the heart of the country is this um, all-American, real American place. And in the sense of contemporary politics, how much of it was fed early on by Nixon and this idea of a silent majority that somehow was represented by this heartland of the country? Right. So I think, you know, that kind of rhetoric draws on the ideas that are part of the heartland myth. So that, you know, there are different kind of tentacles and branches that stem out from the conception that there are insiders and outsiders, real Americans and less real Americans. Um, um, yeah, that are all in, you know, in some way connected um, in terms of fundamental ideas about belonging. But what I find that the idea that there is this walled off insular, you know, uh, place in, in the middle of the country is just bunk, right? <laughs> but 
the heartland was global before it became seemingly local, that the pioneers, by definition, came from someplace else. They displaced people um, who had no conception of being local. The indigenous people who were forced out of Illinois, um, for example, um, were seasonally mobile. They had traveled long distances over time, and they experienced locality as a form of colonial domination, right? It was the, you know, the settler colonists coming in who pinned them to place on reservations, which they could not leave without passes and armed military escorts. Um, it was you know, the pioneers and their descendants incarcerated Native Americans who you know, had no experience of that in their own culture. Like incarceration was you know, this colonial concept, they got pinned to place by quarantines, you know, it's, you know, something that's really relevant to our own uh, moment. Their children were forced into boarding schools, right, where they had to learn sitting at a desk. The women were told to be domestic, to stay at home all day. So for them to be local was produced by these pioneers and, and their descendants whose ancestors came from somewhere else. And stories of that nature just, you know, are, are threaded all through the history of place that, um, it really was global circuits of, of commerce, of ideas, of military power um, that, that constituted what is, you know, the modern Midwest. How much of, of the attitudes towards it became kind of self-fulfilling prophecies, that, that rather than fight back, that a lot of folks in the heartland kind of would, would lean in to, to some of the criticism, lean into the cliches, lean into the conventional wisdom— and that that further exacerbated the divides we see today. Yeah, so I think there is a certain truth to that. Um, often people in the heartland regard the term as something that outsiders apply to the heartland, right? You know, so people in the rural Midwest say, we never use that word to describe ourselves. That's something that, you know, the flyers over looking down on us um, might use that term. Um, but I also think that a lot of the tenets of the heartland myth, the ideas about being more like um, uh, insulated, buffered, all-American, are ideas that people in the region sometimes um, uh, affix to themselves or adhere to. And I wrote the book for both audiences, right? For the people looking down on the region who um, I think have – um, misperceived it, but also for people living in the kinds of communities that I write about who I think have been shut off from their own past and who haven't really fully grasped how connected their um, ancestors have been to much wider um, circuits. One of the other things that you highlight is is really a pushback to this idea that the quote-unquote heartland is somehow monolithic. But, but you point out that it is very different in, in many places, and so many places have their own character, their own reason for being that, that really makes them different from other places in the heartland. Yeah, so my method is I take a local history, and then I follow various threads. Um, and they do indeed take me to all kinds of corners of the world, right, to like um, – northern Greenland to the ships of the British Empire, you know, kind of crisscrossing uh, the oceans to places in central um, Mexico to bioprospectors who were coursing uh, China and Korea and Japan for genetic uh, plant material, such as the soy that was introduced in the early 20th um, century. Um, so, so my method is a local history method. Um, 
that could be applied to any one of, you know, a number of places, including, you know, to histories of Napa, right? Um, and the stories I tell in some way are specific stories um, to the place that is my starting point. But it, the larger point is generalizable to every place, right? Which is that um, if you um, take a closer look at local history with an eye not on wall building or boundary establishing or, or assuming we know the boundaries or the unit of analysis from the get-go. But we take a closer look wondering how are the people in this place connected to other places? Then what we find are astounding stories of um, human connection. And in that respect, I think um, my findings are really applicable to all of the Midwest um, as well as to other parts of the country, even though the details of each specific story um, may be slightly different. How much does economics play a role in this story, in the economics of the Midwest? Yeah, so that's a huge part of the story. And I focus particularly on agricultural um, production um, because I think that's something that's been largely overlooked, with one exception, that we've always known that Midwestern commodity producers have sought global markets. And in fact, um, they've been credited as like some of the original builders of the American um, island empire insofar as they pressed for things like naval building, for coaling stations, for acquisition um, of um, island outposts like Cuba and Puerto Rico for building the Panama on Canal, um, thinking that that would help them achieve export markets in the Caribbean and Latin America and East Asia. So, so that is a story that um, is familiar to historians. But what we haven't recognized to the same degree is that these very same farmers were dependent on imports. And we're not you know, just talking about like, you know, cocaine for their toothaches or mahogany for their furniture, but they imported the means of production that a lot of the plant materials, the genetic material came from elsewhere. I live in the so-called prairie state, but less than one-tenth of one percent of Illinois is native tall grass prairie. And that's not just because of urbanization, that's because of the uh, introduction of um, plants and animals from other parts of the world. Um, on the massive scale of the soy fields that you can see from the air to the microscopic level of um, bacteria in the soil that was purposefully introduced from Germany because it could fix nitrogen um, in the soil. You can see it in the honeybees out my window that are swarming around my apple tree. These are descendants of like Italian bees that were brought in in the 19th century. And the apple tree, apples are not native, you know, to, to um, the Americas. So again, this is another one of these um, biological um, importations. And then the stories go on from there um, to things like scientific agricultural circuits that um, knit um, farmers uh, together to in places like um, uh, my community where there's a Big Ten University. There were international students on campus um, over a century ago who were studying agriculture who networked with each other, students from places like China and Mexico and India um, and the Philippines who, who started agitizing, uh, <laughs> excuse me, agitating for um, uh, national self-determination for, you know, um, colonial liber you know, liberation from colonial rule in places like the small town Midwest, right? Um, because it was a nexus of, of connection. And these are histories that are not uh, well known. As the coastal parts of the country have changed and attitudes have changed, how have people in the Midwest responded to that? What, what is their attitude 
about the kind of conventional wisdom that we're talking about. Right. So I have to say that one of the things I'm arguing against is the idea that there is like a Midwest, right? That there's some kind of coherent group of people um, who could represent all of the Midwest. That in fact, it's as diverse as, you know, any other um, part of the country, although the diversity might take slightly different forms. So I would be reluctant to speak about the Midwest in general because it is a complicated place, which is part of the point of the book is to get people to understand how complicated it is and to understand how that came to be through understanding the past um, that, you know, in many ways um, provides not only, you know, the backstory, but also helps shape the character of the, the present day Midwest. And I have to say that with the conception of the Midwest, you know, with all the things that have been projected onto the rural Midwest in terms of its um, localism, insularity, and so forth, that, of course, there is some truth to that, but it's also true for other parts of the country. And so for outsiders to assume that, um, that there are certain attributes that follow from geographic location, that because of the location in the middle of the country, that people must be a certain way, is really um, kind of misguided um, kind of geographic determinism that I argue against. Talk about the impact of migration, people that are there, like yourself, that are essentially newcomers versus people that have been there their whole lives, that are multi-generational residents of these places. Yeah, so in terms of the present day Midwest, I would say that it is like other parts of the country insofar as there are ongoing immigration um, streams um, of of various kinds that are... um, shaping, um, you know, not only urban areas, but also small um, town and um, rural areas. I think we see some of um, these stories in um, recent coverage of like the meatpacking um, industry. Who are some of these workers, right, who are risking their lives right now um, to to show up on the job um, to, you know, produce um, meat products for American consumers? Um, Historically, the Midwest... um, as today has has been a place profoundly shaped by immigration um, in ways um, that have really made foreign affairs part of daily life, right? Foreign relations has never been just something that has happened out there, but it's happened within communities with people from different ethnic national groups marrying across lines, maintaining connections to people in the home country, sometimes if they're able to, you know, make return um, visits, um, return mobility, um, so that's something that I track in the book. Another thing that is really um, an important part of the book is thinking about the Midwest as a place in the middle. Um, not only the, the very word Midwest suggests kind of a lateral axis. It's the place between the east and, and, and the west, or the near west and the far west. But I turn the axis, axis north-south um, because the Midwest has had very strong connections across the border with Canada, and also, and this was more surprising to me, with Mexico. And one way that I, I track this historically is by looking at the beef um, industry. Um, and farmers in the Midwest um, imported very high-value um, pure-blooded animals, not only from Northern Europe, but also from Canada, and were densely connected to um, livestock breeders and to farming circuits 
in places like Ontario. And these animals were like celebrity animals, right? They were imported for breeding purposes, and they often had aristocratic names. You could track their ancestry back multiple generations in herd books. And um, they sold for tons of um, money and helped develop feelings of affiliation with the Canadian and European breeders and the same breeding circuits who had the same investments in the same strains of animals. Meanwhile, the very same farmers, once they start growing corn and they establish feedlots for for corn um, fattening, um, are importing southern animals for fattening purposes, which they often depict as Texan animals, but in fact, many of the animals are Mexican um, animals. And their Mexicanness becomes most apparent when there are disease outbreaks. And then the animals are always identified as Mexican threats. And it's just fascinating because they're, the animals are racialized both ways, right? The northern European animals um, with their aristocratic names and the Mexican animals that are often depicted as African-descended animals animals because they, you know, came from Spain with its close connections to North Africa in the time of Cortez um, and, and, you know, kind of went feral in the northern reaches of um, Mexico. And the perceptions about the animals get mapped onto perceptions about people. And then they also affect ideas about how borders should be patrolled. And there are very different conclusions that are drawn by the people in the middle about how northern borders with Canadians should be drawn versus how southern borders um, should be um, drawn. And and these have a lot to do with stories of um, animal mobility that then get connected to perceptions about people. And, of course, the other thing that happens is that all of this richness and diversity, albeit different kinds of diversity, as you say, gets subsumed by contemporary politics in some respects, and it makes it so hard to dig deeper into the kinds of things that you're talking about. Yeah, so that's one of the things that I really hope the book will um, do in the months ahead as the election um, becomes a you know a central issue of the day, that I think part of what the book does is it helps us understand the Midwest, right? The real place, the, the place where there are swing states, um, where the voters will make a real significant uh, difference in the outcome of the election. But I think the book is bigger than that insofar as it tackles ongoing issues about what kind of a nation we are at heart. It's about ideas about insiders and outsiders. It's about how we conceive of our place, our, ourselves in place. Are we inward looking wall builders? Are we outward looking, you know, recognizing connections without um, other parts of the world? It's about like, what is the nature of American um, greatness? And would we do better um, to conceive of the world through um, myths that may be very comforting but can be um, profoundly misleading or through more open-eyed, um, evidence-based kinds of analysis? What do, you, what do you think is the greatest misconception that, that so many of the people you talk to have about the way that they're perceived? Are they angry about it? Are they frustrated about it? Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so... So one word that is often attached to the Midwest is flyover country. In fact, you may have mentioned that in your introduction, which is so dismissive. And it's also about power, right? It's about literally looking down on people and assuming that they are somehow 
lesser, right? That they're not as cosmopolitan with cosmopolitanism, you know, signifying um, some kind of higher social status. Um, and that there's really nothing down there, right? That it's Flatville or Dullesville. And I have to say the Midwest, you know, there are parts of it, including where I live, there are parts that are quite flat. But there are incredible stories to be found um, down there that what you cannot see flying across the country looking out of your airplane window is that there are major engineering works under all those flat fields of the um, um, formerly wet prairie in the Midwest that all that land where the corn and soy is growing now used to be wetland. And it was tiled and drained um, in a very arduous um, process fast-tracking all that water out to the Mississippi and ultimately down um, to the Gulf of um, Mexico, thereby enabling, you know, some of the richest agricultural um, soil in the world to kind of emerge from the muck. Um, and there are countless other stories of that, you know, kind of surprising character to be told about um, the region. And, you know, just continuing with, like, the flyover idea, there's stories of aerial connectedness, right, that rural people um, in the middle of the country for whom traveling via land, you know, takes some some time and, you know, can be um, an arduous uh, trip prior to the advent of, like, railroads and interstate highways and commercial aviation, nonetheless had, had immediate connection to other parts of the world through airspace. One of the surprising stories I um, uncovered was just how important birds were to rural people in the Midwest who depended on them um, in part for protein, um, but also for pest control before there were synthetic pesticides. Um, and when bird populations started to plummet, farmers in places like the Midwest became major constituents for bird um, protection legislation, including international um, treaties, and major audiences for the efforts to try to figure out bird migrations. So the point of all this, you know, going back to your question about um, people in the area, is I think when regarded in terms of stereotype as you know, kind of shallow, two-dimensional figures, kind of stripped of all complexity. I think the pushback is we have always been people with rich and complex um, histories um, that deserve more consideration, right? That this region of the country really um, should not be kind of um, looked down on, dismissed, ignored um, to the extent that it has been. Kristen Hoganson. Her book is The Heartland, an American History. Kristen, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Well, thank you, Jeff. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you.